coming up. A lot of people have accused you of being narcissistic. Life as a work of art. People think that I'm egotistical and narcissistic, but it's not true. As a matter of fact, if I did identify with a Greek mythological character, it would not be Narcissus. Who would it be? Zeus. Could living your life as a work of art really be the secret to happiness? There's a way of relating to your life and assuming a posture of authorship toward it. Our guest is Lanier Anderson from Stanford University. Exactly that power to stand back and reflect and plan your life can allow you actually to reconnect with that life and endorse it in a way that enables your life to realize an important value of autonomy. All people know the same truth. Our lives consist of how we choose to distort it. Life as a work of art, coming up on Philosophy Talk. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm John Perry. And I'm Ken Taylor. We're coming to you from the Stanford University campus as part of the Stanford Continuing Study Series, The Art of Living. Our thinking originates on the other side of the quad over at Philosopher's Corner, where Ken and I practice the art of philosophy. Welcome, everyone, to Philosophy Talk. Today, life as a work of art. Well, Ken, lots of lives are works of art, or parts of works of art. For example, Captain Ahab's life is a part of Melville's novel, Moby Dick. But my life isn't a work of art, so why in the world should I pretend that it is? Well, John, the idea is that real life, even your life and my life, can be and maybe ought to be regarded as, as works of art. Well, I, I can see that there could be a comic novel about an absent-minded philosophy professor that was based on my life. It might even be well-written, artistically written, but that wouldn't make me a work of art. But your life, like a work of art, is shaped and formed by the decision of a person, an artist, an author, and that person is you. And like an artist, you, you can make something beautiful or, or at least meaningful out of your life, purposely shaping your life into something with coherence, beauty, grace, style. That's what it is to live your life as a work of art. Well, there's a couple of problems with that. If, if, I'm, if I'm writing a novel, I can make the hero anything I want. I can make my hero be a quarterback who studies physics for fun and makes a lot of money on the stock market on the side. But I can't just write my life like that. I can't make my life like that. Life is not like that. You can't just decide how you want your life to be and then shape it. Well, John, I, I, I think you're underestimating your own artistic power. Yeah, yeah. Look, you are constrained by your physical and mental equipment. And there are many other things that are out of your control, no doubt about it, John. But there's still lots of room to make many important choices and decisions about your life. And here's the point, aesthetic values, artistic values can shape and guide those choices and decisions. Okay, let's assume this all makes sense. Even so, it seems like a really bad idea. No, why would you say that? I don't get that. 
Well, because the aesthetic, artistic decisions, the decisions made by the lights of those motives, may not be the wise decisions. They may even be deeply immoral decisions. Suppose I'm at a bar, and an obnoxious guy gives me a hard time, and finally, he hits me. The wise thing to do is for me to leave. Given my prowess as a fighter, the moral thing to do is leave before I hurt another human being. <laughs> to turn the other cheek, as my grandmother taught me. But those decisions would make for a very boring life. You'd never get a good movie out of somebody that lived that sort of life. If my life is to be a work of art, I need to do something exciting, like busting a bottle of bourbon over the guy's head. Oh, John, your, your, your aesthetic sense is way too crude. Look, look, great characters in great novels, they don't have to be violent thugs. I mean, think, think Jane Eyre. Think uh, Holden Caulfield. Think Jean Valjean from Les Miserables. And besides... Don't you want to live your life so that it's aesthetically coherent? Don't you want to live with a sense of style? Don't you want your life to be governed by themes? That's what it is to live one's life as a work of art, John. Oh, get real. I mean, <laughs> that, that sounds so self-absorbed, even narcissistic to me, like Bo Brummel or Oscar Wilde or Johnny Depp. I <laughs> I, I guess it could be if it was carried to an extreme, but that's not intrinsic to the very idea. It, it's, it's less a matter of being self-absorbed than being self-reflective. What am I trying to do with my life? What sort of person am I? Do I want to be and become? What sort of impression do I want to make on others? Those are the questions, John. Well, maybe I can make a little sense out of it this way. It sounds like what you think I should do is I should draft something that could be read at my funeral. And, and it should have artistic value. It should paint me as an interesting character. Maybe flawed but virtuous, gruff but kind, and so on. Then, having written that, I should try to live my life, so, in fact, that would be an accurate eulogy. Well, if you live that way, if you live your life that way, with an eye toward what it would look like as a whole, is that necessarily narcissistic or self-absorbed, to go back to your criticism? I don't see why you would think that. Well, to tell you the truth, I'm still pretty skeptical of the whole idea. Well, let's see if this helps ease your skepticism. Our roving philosophical reporter, Caitlin Ash, talked to some musicians who've incorporated their lives into their art and their art into their lives. She files this report. 2011 was a year of highs and lows for blues singer Janiva Magnus. All these wonderful things were happening and all these horrific things were happening. Lots of losses. That year I buried eight people very close to me. Uh, lost a 17-year marriage. My cat died the week before Christmas. Uh, my kitty girl. And um, I made a record. That record, Stronger For It, is a reflection of what she was going through at the time. Like this one particularly brutal conversation with her ex. I hung up the phone. And I swear to God, I could see the knife in my chest. That's what it felt like. And I literally was breathless. I, when I hung up the phone and I sat at my desk, sobbing, with snot running down my lip, it was beautiful. She picked up her pen and the words just started pouring out. The pain of her divorce and the pain of her rocky past turned into what would become the song, Whistling in the Dark. And I scratched out the lyric. When you first held me, you held me so tight. I felt like nothing could hurt me in the middle of the night. 
Those days are long gone. But some nights I still feel the same. I know you're leaving. And I think maybe I only got myself to blame. But I'll keep pretending. I'll just keep on pretending. I'll just keep on pretending. Whistling in the dark. I had a pretty rough kickstart. My parents were bad people. They were just kind of sick. They were sick people. I was molested in the home by the age of six. Um, first time I tried to kill myself, I was four. My mother found it necessary to take her own life right after my 13th birthday. Um, my father found it necessary to take his own life right after I turned 16. Then she found blues music, and it saved her. The first time she heard Otis Rush live, the music held her captive, and it made her feel like she was okay. I'm not alone in the world. I'm not frightened. I'm not um, grieving. I'm not anything other than like in this moment, and it feels really good. I've seen people who, if I could write a song as beautiful as they've composed their life, I would, I would be a happy songwriter. <laughs> Craig Chiquiso is a gifted guitar player and former member of Jefferson Starship. As a child, Craig and his father were hit by a drunk driver. The accident would affect the rest of his life. I woke up in the hospital with two broken arms, a broken thumb, a broken wrist, a broken leg, broken ankle, broken foot. Uh, I was in a coma for a little while, and uh, when I came to, um, the first thing I asked for was my little acoustic guitar. Music was his physical and emotional therapy. Lying in his hospital bed, arms and leg in a cast, Craig wrote a song that, 30 years later, would end up on his Grammy-nominated album. Since I could only reach the high E string on my little guitar at that time, uh, I wrote a song on the E string, because it was the only string I could play. When I see work that really moves me, I know that that person who created it had something that I share with them, that same feeling, that joy, that sadness, that sorrow, that love, whatever it is I'm getting out of their art, I, I know they've lived it too, to, to touch me on such a deep level. Craig plays free shows for hospital patients. Janaba has become a foster care activist, sharing her story to help inspire kids. They both fought hard and lived well. Their lives are in their music, and their music is beautiful. For Philosophy Talk, I'm Caitlin Esch. Thanks, Caitlin. People who take up the pieces of their shattered lives and make something beautiful out of it, what finer artists could there be? I'm John Perry, along with my fellow philosopher at Stanford, Ken Taylor, and we're coming to you from the Stanford campus. This is part of the continuing studies series, The Art of Living. And our guest today is our friend and colleague, the author of Nietzsche on Redemption and Transfiguration. Please welcome Lanier Anderson. Lanier, tell us a little how you came to this topic of living one's life as a work of art. As a freshman, John, I read Nietzsche and I was captivated by this idea, this idea that artistic refashioning could help us to deal effectively with the kind of setbacks and downsides in life that Caitlin was just telling us about. Art is a powerful cultural source of value and the idea here is to mobilize that value in our everyday lives. 
Well, I have a little problem with this. A, a work of art requires an artist, and then there's the work the artist produces, a novel, a sculpture, a painting. Now, the artist has to think about the work of art as something he's creating, and it's going to be received by other people. They're going to like it. They're not going to like it. It's going to uplift them. It's going to make them sad. It's going to bore them. They're going to ignore it. They're going to pay a lot of money for it. They're not. Now, isn't it a little bit alienating and inauthentic to think of one's own life in the way that one thinks of an object, something other than oneself that one's creating? Isn't there a basic problem in that whole idea? Don't you want to just give it up and we can talk about something else? <laughs> I'm going to give you a two-part response to that question. No. The capacity for the kind of detachment and deliberate self-management, to use a word that my friend Ken Taylor likes, that you're running down here is in fact crucial to our rational, our ability to rationally engage with our experience. Rather than being just pushed around by everything that happens to us, we can independently decide on our stance toward those things. And it's this capacity for detachment that you're running down that allows us to do that in the first place. But second part, exactly that power to stand back and reflect and plan your life can allow you actually to reconnect with that life and endorse it in a way that enables your life to realize an important value of autonomy. So I didn't quite convince you. Not no, quite. No, but I, I take your point, and I think that's a good response, but I think there is something else be possibly behind John's kind of worry. I mean, think of politicians constructing a narrative for themselves. Right? Think, think of movie stars constructing an image for themselves. I mean, you could imagine that this thing that you construct is like a product other than the authentic real self. And if it's that, then there is something problematic like about that. Yeah, so, so if I'm not a, a good artist, maybe I should hire a, a consultant to help me decide <laughs> so, what kind yeah, what's of the difference life I want to live. Sort of <laughs> okay, so what I, you're I, talking so about in, I, an, an, an actor or right, something like so that. Right, so I totally admit that you could end up just pretending to live the kind of life that you uh, wish for yourself. And if that's really true, then you haven't achieved that artistic value in your life itself. What you have to do is actually endorse that thing and not be alienated from it in the way John imagines. So there's an alienating way to do it and a non-alienating way to do it. And this is Philosophy Talk, coming to you from the Stanford campus where we are thinking about life as a work of art, our guest is Lanier Anderson from Stanford University. In our next segment, we'll think about how the quest for an aesthetically pleasing life fits in with other goals, to be happy, to be moral, things like that. Art, morality, and life, along with questions from our audience when Philosophy Talk continues. Welcome back to Philosophy Talk. I'm John Perry. And I'm Ken Taylor. Our guest is Anir Anderson from Stanford University, and we're talking about life as a work of art. Do you think of your life as a work of art? Do you think of the lives of other people that way? 
You can join the discussion by stepping up to the microphones on either side of the stage. So, Lanier, I, I, I can see that realizing certain aesthetic values in your life, values like beauty, coherence, drama, one wants an interesting life, and things like that, they have a certain and deep appeal. But is, is that really more important a goal than, say, being happy or being moral? I mean, where does that fit in the whole pantheon of things that matter? So from one point of view, you could think that these values are in competition with each other. But in the case of happiness in particular, I think that this is just a piece, uh, in, engaging those artistic values in your life is just a piece of what it is for people to be happy. In the case of moral values, I tend to think that moral values offer us a delimited domain of very important claims of how we should relate to other people without which we can't possibly live as social animals. But if we allow those claims to take over our entire life and run all non-moral value out of it, then uh, those claims threaten to uh, make us alienated from ourselves. No, I, no, I think you're making a deep point. I think, actually, I think you're making two deep points. I want to separate them because okay. I think they're really important. Because I, I, you said you got this you, idea of life as a work of art by reading Nietzsche, and Nietzsche certainly is into that thing. But something else you said, I mean, so you can wonder about morality, why does it get its claim on you? And you can worry that it's kind of self-alienation because it can say, give up the things you most desire in, in to be the servant of other people, Nietzsche says, that's being an instrument of the herd. But you said something about happiness not inconsistent with this. It sounded, kind, that sounds a little Greek, because the Greeks, when they started thinking about ethics, they start thinking about not what do I owe to older people, but what's necessary for human flourishing, for a well-lived life, for eudaimonia. Right? Is, Nietzsche, is Nietzsche on the same kind of page with the Greeks? Or? I think there is something pleasantly Greek-flavored about it, isn't it? <laughs> um, and in particular, he's invested in this idea that your eudaimonia, your happiness, your flourishing is an overall well-being in which all the different kinds of value that you might want to instantiate in your life sort of come together. Um, and that's the sense in which I think he thinks this is not supposed to be in competition with happiness. We've got a lot of questions from our live audience. You're listening to Philosophy Talk. We're talking about life as a work of art in front of an audience as part of our Art of Living series. And welcome to Philosophy Talk, sir. Tell us your name and then tell us your question. Hi, my name is Mo Azadeh. I'm from uh, Redwood City. And the question I had was, um, you know, thinking of life about a work of uh, art kind of leaves it too arbitrary. Like, uh, you know, if you think of a story, you can end it in many ways. All of them may be, you know, aesthetically pleasing, but are all of them, you know, good lives? Yeah, that's a good question. That is a good question. So there are lots of different ways, there are different aesthetic values that you could uh, pursue, and there are different ways to realize them. And one way of getting at this is to recognize that aesthetic values are deeply particularistic. Instead of making universal claims that would guide action in all circumstances, they're supposed to guide you in a particular way that's apt to the special circumstances that you're in, and precisely because of that, they can be realized in different ways uh, in different circumstances. So I want to just say it's not a bug, it's a feature. Well, wait a minute, wait a minute. But, I, but one might worry. I don't know if I do worry, but somebody might worry that you're trending toward a deep relativism. I mean, the beauty of a work of art is in the eye of the beholder, right? Plausibly, right? One man's yay experience is another person's boo experience. 
So I live my life this way. I say, I construct this thing. It's beautiful. And other people look at me and say, yuck, that's beautiful. And maybe you're completely self-satisfied with your life. Maybe Nietzsche has this test of whether you're right. satisfied with your life, his internal recurrence test. You know, he's going to offer you this life over and over and over and over and over and over again to infinity, and you've lived well. You've lived, I don't know if it's artistically, but you've lived well only if you would say yes to it and not change a darn thing, because it's like a perfect construction. But, you know, one man's yay is another man's yuck. Is that how it is with, well, with a good life? I don't know. Absolutely not. So uh, part of what I think is attractive and compelling about trying to mobilize and realize aesthetic value for the purpose of guiding your life is that aesthetic value, while resisting the claim that there's one way of doing things that's got to be the best for everyone, nevertheless calls on us to give reasons and to make a claim on the attention of another person. So when I make an aesthetic judgment, I don't just say, well, this is good for me, but I don't care if you like it or not. If it's a genuine aesthetic judgment, I'm claiming that you ought to like you it. You sound like and Kant. Well, <laughs> it's an occupational hazard. <laughs> We've got another question from our live audience. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, sir. Thank you. I'm Jim from Palo Alto, and I'm thinking about eternal recurrence and wondering if it makes sense to you to think of it as... Uh, a sort of thought experiment, or uh, and maybe the ultimate thought experience for aesthetizing life. And uh, exactly how does that work? Would you agree with looking at it that way, or is that a mistake? So I do think that it's supposed to be a thought experiment, and it's supposed to be a thought experiment that helps us to guide our lives in important ways. I guess I don't think that it automatically carries with it this separate commitment of Nietzsche's that aesthetic values have to be crucial to the way of life. I think the way the test works, it's interesting. He doesn't specify, when he says, imagine your life is coming back to you over and over again, what would you do then? He doesn't specify the set of values according to which you should assess it. He doesn't say, will you be rich enough? Or will you be healthy enough? Or will you be moral enough? Or will you be beautiful enough? He just says, how would you feel then? And I think that aim of setting the test up that way is to run it as a kind of consistency test between the values you actually hold and the life you really have lived. So when he sets up this sort of spooky experiment, the idea is to activate in you the values that genuinely motivate you whether you realize those are the ones motivating you or not. So it's going to cut through all your rationalization and sort of get your gut reaction. I want to press you and Ken too, because he's a big Nietzsche admirer on this idea of eternal recurrence. This seems to me, or Groundhog's Day, as we might, <laughs> uh, this seems to me one of the worst ideas to be taken seriously in the whole history of philosophy. The idea that if you've lived a well-lived life... Why are you holding back like this, John? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that, and then you had a chance to live your life over again. You'd want to do everything the same. Why would you? Why should the fact that the next time around, maybe instead of taking your honeymoon in Niagara Falls, you'd want to go to Guadalajara? 
Why does that mean your life wasn't well lived? Why does the fact you say, been there, done that, so next time go somewhere else, do something yeah, else? Right. No, why why I, does that mean? I, it's just nuts. Nobody <laughs> in their right mind, even the most well lived lives you can think about, would pass Nietzsche's test unless they were nuts. I think you're right. I think you have a point, and I often worry about this test. I'm not as big of a fan of it as some others are, but, but think of it this way, perhaps. I want to connect this to our last questioner. What is it to live life as a work of art? It's to take the materials that are given to you, and the materials are just given, and weave them into something. Right? Like in Caitlin's piece, all those people wove the suffering, the disappointments, the hurt into a life that they could live. Now, if I'm a painter, and I weave this stuff into a whole, and somebody says, would you change a thing about this painting? I, I certainly have perfected it. If even though there's a little ugly patch over there, that little, little ugly patch belongs in this overall beautiful thing. So maybe that's the point. If you're given this thing over and over again, you have lived it so well. You have so artistically woven it together that even the pains and the sufferings, which are just the raw material out of which you constitute the life, you wouldn't, you wouldn't go away. I think... Ken is on to a big part of what's supposed to be illuminating or attractive about the test. And here's a, another way of emphasizing the point. What you're objecting to here is sort of the sameness requirement that's built into the test, that every single detail has to be the same. So I, I, I'll concede to you that as a practical thought experiment for guiding your real life, there's something unrealistic about this requirement. I concede it. But it has a practical point uh, to I'll, think of your... I'll accept unrealistic. Would you give me nutty? No. Oh, okay. <laughs> the reason it's not nutty is that there's a practical point behind it. So the force of insisting on the sameness requirement is to disable a certain kind of practical rationalization. It's a way of pretending that bad things that happened in your life because they've slipped into the past, don't concern you anymore and are not part of your life. The idea that your whole life, every single detail is coming back to you, forces you to pay attention to the pieces of your life that maybe bring disvalue into it and need some repair. And so really it's a way of uh, generating and framing for you a problem of redeeming the parts of your life that need redeeming. Uh, oh, I want to I want to add on even more. <laughs> I hate, but but I think there's there's something deep here. I think there's actually something deep really going on, and it goes again back to the metaphor of life as art and contrast with morality. What does morality tell you to do in the face of let's call it undeserved suffering? What does it tell you to do? It's not clear to me. Right, some, I mean, you could resist, but if the suffering's in the past and the others, there's no more resisting. You could forgive, you could, you know, but it's, it's not. The Nietzschean story says something to you about, look, forget what's morally required. Take up everything that happens in your life and weave it into a life that you can fully own. That's not a moral direction, but that's a direction for constituting a self. And I think that's, there's something really profound there. Really well, profound. Yeah, what you said makes pretty good sense. Uh, but it, it, I, I don't think eternal recurrence is a very good 
way of test for it. Now, the, the, the way Lanier said it was quite revealing because a little Christian word crept in there. Redeem, redeem. About five or six times, I think. I think this is <laughs> just Nietzsche backsliding, <laughs> right? And saying, well, you want to cleanse your life of sin. Here's how to locate the sins. Go back and see uh, what you'd change if you're going to do it again. But there's all the difference in the world, John, because <laughs> the Christian concept of redemption is all about payback. It's all about compensation. The etymological root uh, meaning of redeem is your people get conquered by somebody and taken into slavery, you go buy them back. That's what redeeming is. And Christian redemption is all about that. God comes down, he pays the ransom, we get redeemed. And then we go to eternity and get paid back for the crappy life we've had. But that doesn't redeem the real thing that needs redeeming. The real crappy life remains totally crappy. And indeed, you have to admit that it's totally crappy because that's the admission ticket to heaven. You have to repent mm -hmm. about that crappy life. And Nietzsche's point is, the real thing that needed redeeming was the crappy life. And this sort of strategy that Ken was talking about, where you take the hand that you're dealt and take over some artistic form that enables it to be seen to have value in a context, that gives you a way of addressing the genuine crappy thing that happened to you. Welcome to Velocity Talk, sir. Hi, I was thinking of the uh, art of cinema, a lot of fans of that. Uh, and, and many fans are of the movie genre horror films. Um, to live life as art that you like would in that case be to inflict the drama of horror onto others. So I just wanted to look at a practical <laughs> example of that. You want to do something with that? Yeah. Outstanding. So um, I think the idea of life as a work of art is supposed to be a metaphor. And the metaphor is supposed to focus us on certain aspects of aesthetic experience and not all aspects of aesthetic experience. So another version of the challenge that uh, seems to be behind your question has been provocatively raised by a friend of mine, Elijah Milgram, in a paper of his, uh, where he talks about how Oscar Wilde made his life into a beautiful work of art that's a tragedy and didn't it suck for him. <laughs> so I think that there is something to that. Um, not all works of art carry the value that we take in them aesthetically for the depicted participants in the work of art. They don't inherit the value. The value doesn't translate down from the work to the, to the depicted characters. And I think in the case of trying to improve your life by making it artistic, you need to take over those artistic forms in a way that does allow the value to transmit down. You, you really think uh, this life as a work is only a metaphor? I mean, you don't think it's, I mean, do you think that, uh, so, speaking of genres, do, do you think that a life can have a genre? I mean, I have I a, we have a mutual friend who wants to, John, John likes to say, uh, his life doesn't have a narrative. We have a mutual friend, Josh Landy, who's been on the show a number of times, who says to John, oh, your life is a picaresque. It's a tale in which one thing, kind of thing happens to another. There are quest narratives. There are, you know, Bildungsromans. There are all kinds of forms that a life could take. And Josh seems to take this idea really seriously that your life can actually have an artistic form? I think it could have an artistic form, but I guess I do still think it's a metaphor because I think that, in fact, art is a proper part of life. So, so I think that what happens when uh, John's life looks like a picaresque is that some parts of John's life have that shape to them. Um, narrative art forms, narrative genres, seem to be especially good for this because 
Uh, there's a kind of natural fit to the human life that has a beginning and a middle and an end. Um, but all kinds of other artistic forms should also be taken over for this kind of purpose. And not all of them will turn out to match your whole life. So if, you're, if the essay is the form and what you're trying to do is make your life into a series of trials or an experiment or something, your whole life is not going to look like that. So, so there's kind of two philosophical roots that, that come to this idea, the Greek and the Nietzschean. And, you know, we've talked a bit about the Nietzschean, but I'd like to hear more maybe in the next segment about the Greek and the whole idea of virtues. Is, I mean, when I think of it, I think of a eulogy where you can say, this is the kind of person he was. He had these virtues, had these vices. That, to me, makes a life that's a little more coherent. Um, and I can kind of see that as something that you might want to strive for. So, well, what kind of person am I am? Well, you know, I'm not that old, I'm not, I'm not kind, but I'm very bright, so let's work on that, <laughs> or, uh, uh, or the opposite. Uh, so are the Greek side and the Nietzschean side in agreement on this kind of thing, or is this, are the virtues that is so much part of Greek ethics irrelevant to this picture? Well, I think you need some particular virtues in order to carry off the importation of this kind of artistic value into your life. Um, you need maybe creativity. You need uh, a certain kind of personal consistency and stick to in order to stick to a style or something like that. But those other virtues maybe operate on the side of the materials that go into the form that you're taking. And maybe some of them are artistically motivated, but maybe some of them have other motivations too. You're listening to Philosophy Talk. We're out to explore life as a work of art with Lanier Anderson from Stanford University. In our next segment, we'll consider how to balance the different and possibly competing values in one's life. We're coming to you from the Stanford campus, part of the continuing study series, The Art of Living. We'll take more questions from our audience when Philosophy Talk continues. I'm John Perry. This is Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. Our guest is Lanier Anderson, and we're asking about life as a work of art. We've got a question from our live audience right over there. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, ma'am. Hi. Hi, my name is Laura. I'm from San Francisco. Um, so you've been talking about art as a kind of model for how to lead a good life, and haven't really talked much about... Uh, engagement with the arts. So for me in my life, uh, having deep engagement with the arts, whether it be music or dance or something else, is really important and contributes a lot to my life. So I'm wondering, what is the connection between using art as a model for life and also this engagement with the actual arts in life? Excellent question. So I think there are kind of two respects in which that kind of engagement could become really important. For one thing, I think it's unlikely that uh, a person would be able to make effective and powerful use of the sort of models we were talking about in the prior segment if they had not engaged in a serious way with the arts. But I think there's a deeper level to your question which brings out a kind of second aspect of the importance that art might have for a life, and that is there's a way of relating to your life with 
a distinctive kind of activity and assuming a posture of authorship toward it. Really owning the kind of self-management in the Ken Taylor sense uh, that you are forced to engage in as a human being. And that sort of special ownership amounts to a kind of autonomy or giving the law to yourself or making your life what you yourself want it to be. And when you engage yourself in artistic practice, you are practicing that capacity in the particular domain. And that higher order capacity might also be transferred over to your life. So, which, is, which suggests, if you're right, and I think you are plausibly right, that, you know, in America these days we view the arts as a kind of triviality or luxury or something as not the deepest things with which you, we should be about reading, writing, and arithmetic and all this sort of stuff. I mean, which suggests that, look, these are not just, these are models of how we have to make ourselves, and moreover, the engagement with them is part of the making of ourselves. And that's a message that I think does not get much uptake in American education and American culture and American life. What do you think about that? I agree. I totally agree. I think that there is some sense in which uh, the critics who push this line against art are on to something right. Um, there's a kind of luxurious character to uh, making your life genuinely a better thing in the sense that you could stay alive without it. And you could even pursue totally instrumental goals without it. But what's the point of pursuing instrumental goals if you're not going to carve out some space to make your whole life actually it's better? It's the point of an instrument. If you only are pursuing instrumental goals, then you are being only an instrument. instrument. Uh, Welcome to Philosophy Talk. Hi, my name is Carola. I'm from San Francisco. You've been talking about eternal recurrence as the test for seeing whether you have redeemed all the crappy parts of your life. And if you do affirm the eternal recurrence, then you can be said to have lived a good life. But is it possible that there are some lives that are so crappy that nothing you could possibly do in that life would ever redeem all the crappiness? And if you, you couldn't be expected to actually pass the test for such a life. And moreover, would the model of living life as a work of art really be a good model for a person who's dealt this kind of a crappy life? I think you're asking a profound question, a really profound question. I'm going to put it slightly, I'm going to twist it just a little bit because, I mean, it's the person whose suffering is unbearable and all that. That's one kind of way. But think about a person who bears their defeat well. This is a movie, Downfall, about the last days of Hitler. There's his dying breath, Hitler says, in an angry voice, Germany doesn't deserve me. Them people have deserted me. But I did this. I alone, I rid Europe of the Jewish scum with his dying breath. That's what he says. As if, even though Germany's coming, collapsing down his empire, if he, he'd take it all again just to do that one thing, all the defeat, all the loss, all that, he'd pass Nietzsche's test. He's passed Nietzsche's test, and he's, uh, he'd just be a self-satisfied schmuck in passing Nietzsche's test, wouldn't he? So what does Nietzsche's test really, how does it really test for the goodness, the well-livedness of a life? Uh, back to Corolla's question really quickly, I think that it could be that a life 
was just smashed by events outside the person's control and that there would be no amount of artistic refashioning that could get it back into shape. But that's a person who didn't get up to the plate in a certain way. That's a person who wasn't really fully in the game of living this life. Wait a minute. What, what, you could just be smashed by circumstance. Let's I mean, go I back to a be... variation of one of our roving philosophical reporters. Uh, s suppose I'm out. I'm with my son. Uh, we, we have a decision to make. Shall we try to make it home tonight? A lot of drunk drivers out there. Well, let's do it. It's my decision. I make it. Drunk driver hits us. He dies. Yeah. Now, it was my decision. And I think I could make a, a, a life worth living out of those shreds, so that part of it is okay. But eternal recurrence? No. no There's way. no way yeah. you would choose right. Right. not to have made that decision. Right, right. So, so I think that one merit of the test is that it correctly measures the badness of that event by showing that it did in fact ruin the person's life in an important respect. Now, does the, I mean, does it ruin the person's life in every respect? Maybe not. Maybe the person can go on and do other things that are uh, important and valuable, but the value of those things to the person depends in a way on separating them from wait, that wait, event. Wait a minute, and wait a minute. That's the measure of the badness well, of that before event. Before you jump in, say so, but in a way, so there is a separation between the eternal recurrence test and the living life, given what you have got, well, in, in a way that a, makes art of it. Well, right. I well, mean, one could dislike the first idea and like the second idea. You could. You could. Wait, 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 yeah, wait, 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 wait a minute. I think so, Ken wants to get in. Wait, wait a minute. Wait a minute. <laughs> Suppose, you imagine, sure? imagine two people up to time T exactly the same. They both make the decision, right. and the son dies in both yeah. cases. Yeah. One is utterly destroyed, deeply re filled with regret, can't get on with life. The other somehow recovers and goes on and turns that into, they become, I don't know, an advocate for whatever. They turn that into something. I mean, there is a difference between those two lives that has something to do with how well the life, not how well the life has gone, mm -hmm. but how well the life has been lived. And doesn't Nietzsche's test purport to pick up the difference between those two lives? It does, but you can perfectly well imagine, it's not fun to do so, but you can perfectly well imagine circumstances of the sort that Carolla was bringing up, where part of what you lost was the basic capacities that enabled you to do the re, uh, reframing or something, um, where it's just not possible uh, to do it. So I guess in the kind of example you imagined, what Nietzsche's test gives us is a clear sense of what's more satisfying, more valuable for the person about the life in the case of the person who redeemed it than the other life. But that's not to say that the kind of circumstances that uh, Carolla brought to our attention are impossible. Those are totally possible, and the test is not supposed to provide us, I mean, maybe this is the right way to bring this out. The test is not supposed to provide us with what some people think the principles of morality are supposed to provide us, namely this place where we're invulnerable to luck that we can hold on to a kind of value that the world can't take away from us. Well, well, that's, life is not well, like look, that, get, get, and the wanna, value yeah, can be life, taken away life from us. But I want to go back to the, uh, the, what we had started out to say this question was about. I mean, so, right, you talk about what no morality requires, suggests, demands, whatever, versus this 
other thing. I'm not quite sure what the artistic self-ownership. Look, I want a life with many things. I want a life that goes well, not just a life that I live well, but a life in which good things happen to me. You know, I don't want to be run over by an automobile. I don't want my house broken into. I don't want to be killed by a marauding armies. I don't want to be raped. You know, maybe I don't have any control, but I don't want those things. I want those. Li- I want my life to go well. Moreover, I want others to respect me in a certain way. I want them to respect my autonomy. Maybe they will. Maybe they won't. More, I don't just want it. I demand it. I think morality entitles me to demand it. Okay, I also want to create my life in such a way. All these things pull, and sometimes in different directions, mm-hmm. right? Sometimes in different directions. What's your formula for, you know, balancing, balancing this all those. out, for, uh, you know, deciding what matters more in a given situation? I wish I had a formula. I don't have a formula. Uh, I guess I do think this. What's your advice? My advice. I don't even have advice. <laughs> but, so John is right. That. Whoa, what? What? <laughs> I didn't hear you. Could you repeat that? <laughs> John is right that, and there was some proposition in there. Oh, okay. <laughs> John is right that in Nietzsche's own version of the test, um, this demand that you were talking about, the demand that other people recognize your morality, that demand on everybody is not really accounted for or owned up by this, uh, by this as a measure of the goodness of lives. And that's the sense in which Nietzsche himself claims to be an immoralist. And I guess I think that we do need a domain of claims that morality makes on us in virtue of our interactions with other people and our relations to other people um, that has important value for us that may or may not be accounted for by this. Yeah, but Nietzsche's problem is that he thinks those demands that come from other people for you respecting are their always autonomy, are yeah. always alienating and always and will turn you into an instrument of the herd. Now, that's the worst thought he ever had. That was the worst thought he ever had. The eternal well, occurrence, you said that was the worst idea in history. Okay. No, that's one of the worst ideas. <laughs> but isn't there a middle ground where you kind of give the demands of yourself their due, but give the demands of society and morality their due? That doesn't sound very Nietzschean. It sounds more Aristotelian, but... So maybe there does need to be some middle ground there, and you're asking me for a rule or a principle, and I don't have a rule. No, or a just principle. acquiesce to the spirit of the, of the advice. <laughs> Why don't we take some questions from our audience? Welcome to Philosophy Talk, sir. Hi, Val from San Francisco. In the theme of timing is everything, when and if Nietzsche's test is presented to one, the timing of when, how soon before certain death, if Nietzsche's test is presented to us, would that not influence our answer? Absolutely. So uh, it's interesting that when he himself presents it in the most thought experimenty uh, passages, he tends to take it completely out of everyday context. And the way Ken was talking about it a little while ago is really right. He tends to create a sort of spooky atmosphere that is supposed to pull you out of your everyday life. And I think that's because he wants you to use this as a tool of self-assessment that can be deployed at different times. But you won't always get the same answer if you deploy it at different times. So if you have some big negative event, the only rational thing to think in the aftermath of the big negative event is, no way, I'm not wanting that back. Thinking about the test in that 
moment does provide a certain kind of recommendation. It gives you a task. It says, well, look, that's an event that either will ruin your life or you better find some way to do something with it. Um, so, there, so, so it focuses your attention in, in that moment. But there is, I think, and this came out in your question, there is a kind of uh, retrospective deathbed quality to mm -hmm. the character of the assessment that you're being asked to do. And uh, you're being asked to imagine, well, look, if that was it, if, if your life was like this, then uh, would you like it? Well, I'm being asked to imagine if uh, this were the end of the show and we had to do it over and over and over again, would we change a thing? Probably not, but uh, I'm going to thank you for joining us. It's been really great, Lanier. Thank you for having me. It's really great to be here. Our guest has been Lanier Anderson from Stanford University. So, John, how's your artistic life coming along? You, uh, you learn anything today? You got any new thoughts? Yeah. I wrote a play, My Life as a Work of Art. Then I auditioned, and I didn't get the part. <laughs> there you go, oh, John. Actually, I think putting together our discussion with Lanier uh, and, and things I've hear, heard you said, and, and that very interesting piece from Caitlin, our roving philosophical reporter, I, I really see that at least for certain lives in certain situations, this idea of looking at your life, what's left of your life, what you can do with, with what you've been given in life as a work of art is a very powerful and inspiring one. I think that's a, a new thought on your part because every time we've talked about this kind of idea in the past, you've been really resistant. So progress happens. <laughs> and this conversation continues on our blog, theblog.philosophytalk.org, where our motto is cogito ergo blogo. I think, therefore I blog. You can also follow our tweets on Twitter, and you can find out more by visiting our very active Facebook page. Philosophy Talk is a presentation of Ben Manila Productions and the trustees of Leland Stanford Junior University, copyright 2013. Our executive producer is David Demarest. Special thanks to Liz Frith. Azin Masuda and Tyler Haddow. Thanks also to our philosopher of sound, Dan Brandon, and our philosopher of words, Crystal Nickerson. The program is produced by Devin Strolovich. Laura McGuire is our director of research. Our marketing director is Dave Millar. Carola Kreitmar is our performance consultant. Support for Philosophy Talk comes from various groups at Stanford University, the Friends of Philosophy Talk, and from the members of KALW, Local Public Radio, San Francisco, where our program originates. The views expressed or misexpressed on this program do not necessarily represent the opinions of Stanford University or of our other funders. Not even when they're true and reasonable. The conversation continues on our website, philosophytalk.org. I'm John Perry. And I'm Ken Taylor. Thank you for listening. And thank you for thinking. Thank you.